We're in Ephesians chapter 6 today. I'm going to read for us just verses 18 through 20, but we'll be thinking about that whole section that starts down in verse 10. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. First thing about prayer is knowing where you are. Let's say you and your spouse go to your nephew Michael's church wedding on a Saturday in Holland, Michigan. But you get a little bit confused, and instead of going to First Christian Reformed where the wedding is, you go to First Reformed where there's a memorial service for a guy named Michael. And, and because you're driving all this distance, you leave really early, and you get there before everyone else arrives. Not even the pianist or the organist are there when you get there. Now remember, you think you're at a wedding, but you're at a funeral. Two young women arrive next. They sit over here, and they're wearing black. And you say to your spouse, I can't understand girls wearing black to a wedding. I mean, it just seems like it's in bad taste to me. By the way, the first time I ever saw girls wear black to a wedding, black was really cool for a while to wear to weddings. I thought some ex-girlfriend was making a statement. You see these girls, and you're the friendly type, so you go over and you start chatting them up, and, and you ask how they know the family, and one of them says that she was Michael's girlfriend. And that seems, you know, a little odd. So you say, oh, oh, okay, well, maybe we'll see you at the reception. And she looks at you oddly and says, we have to leave right after. So you go back and you whisper to your spouse, the tall one was Michael's ex-girlfriend. That's probably why she's wearing black, you know. And I bet Kristen's not very happy about her being here. So the organist gets there, and she looks like she was born during the Roosevelt administration, the Teddy Roosevelt administration. And, and other people start coming in, and you're looking for people you know, but you're not seeing anyone. And the organist begins to play, and it sounds like a dirge. And you say to your spouse, she probably thinks Tootsie is still on the top 40. And, and then a guy enters your row, and he sits a few feet from you, and you smile, and you say in a low voice, you're just in time for the festivities. <laughs> and he scowls at you, and you think, what is wrong with that guy? But you don't let it get you down, because you're really outgoing, and you lean forward and say to the person who just sat in the row in front of you, if I know Michael, he's going to do something really crazy today. <laughs> Just wait. And, and she refuses even to look at you, you know, and so you finally give up trying to talk to people. Understanding the situation we're in is important when it comes to social life, but also when it comes to prayer. If we don't know why we're here, we don't understand what's going on around us, our prayers are not going to be what they could be. And we're not going to see the answers that we could see, and we're probably not going to pray very much. I'm not sure we have a sufficient grasp of our situation. 
Ephesians 6, the, the passage I just read, the larger passage in which that, those verses are included, places us squarely in the, the context of a conflict or a campaign. And the entire book, is, the entire letter of Ephesians is full of that kind of imagery. There's a war going on. Powers hostile to God and unfriendly to us have seized control of our world. They've had their way for a long time, but now God has taken action. He's come in Christ with his terms for peace. The day is approaching when he will finally wipe out every power that opposes him. That's our situation. Now that conflict scenario comes through every chapter of this letter in some way or another. In chapter 1, where the timetable for the campaign is mentioned, we read verse 10, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Later that same chapter, Paul writes about the incomparably great power available to us who are on God's side, the same power that placed Christ in command and elevated him far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. That's chapter 1. Same kind of thing we find in chapter 2, where Paul mentions the enemy, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and those who blindly follow him. He goes on to talk about how we were among those people before our liberation when Christ tore down the wall and invited us to join his people. He made peace. In fact, Paul says he is our peace. Because of him and him alone, we can have peace with God and with each other. That kind of thing goes on. Chapter 3, God's strategy to demonstrate his wisdom to the rulers and authorities, probably those in opposition to him. Those words are used together oh, I don't know, probably 11, 12 times in the New Testament. And almost every time it's very clear that they are in opposition to God. Chapter 4, we have Christ taking captives. Chapter 5, Paul tells us to watch our steps closely. We're in enemy territory after all. And to buy up every opportunity that presents itself. Now, as Americans, it is hard for us to get our heads around the idea that we're in a war. War, for most of us, is what happens somewhere else. It's what we read about on our news feed or that we see in the evening news. We pray as if we're in a school zone, not a war zone. We pray as if we're competing for a scholarship, not fighting for a kingdom. Like the guy who assumes he's at a wedding when he's really at a funeral and then talks that way, many of us talk to God as if we've joined a social club rather than being enlisted in a kingdom, as if all we're about is advancing a career rather than serving a king. Now, we've talked about some of this already. If you missed it, you might want to listen to the July 29th sermon called Prayer from Matthew chapter 6 at, at the website, lockwoodchurch.org media. It laid the foundation for what we're talking about today. Prayer requests receive positive answers with greater frequency when they're made as part of God's kingdom mission. So when we pray kingdom mission prayers that we see repeated and 
oftentimes remarkable answers to prayer. Now, in Ephesians 6, 18, actually through 20, Paul's instructions about prayer are set squarely in the middle of the battle. So I want us to get that. But then there's something else we have to understand. The battle is set squarely in the middle of daily life. Family relationships, work relationships, difficult economic realities. That's what Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 21, and going through chapter 6 till you get to verse 9, is all about. We don't go somewhere to fight this battle. It's already here. Our struggle, the, the word suggests close quarters combat, is with spiritual forces of evil that have amassed. That's verse 12. We have been told to get on our gear. Those are verses 14 through 17. Because we're going into combat. And whatever happens, we must hold our ground. When the offensive is launched, verse 13, what Paul calls the evil day, we mustn't give way. We have to stand firm. The praying in verse 18 is done by people who understand the situation. Yes, the baby needs to be changed. No, we don't know where the money is going to come from to pay for the car. Uh, Yes, we did get in an argument with our spouse yesterday, which is obviously not over, and we're supposed to go out with friends tonight. That's life, but it's never just life. It's always life carried on in the midst of a war God himself is waging against evil. And our job is to prepare for the establishment of his kingdom. Now, we can't bring his kingdom. We don't need to. He's going to do that. But we prepare for it. We are soldiers, agents, operatives. And we carry out our orders while we carry on our lives. For Jesus' people, there's no such thing as a regular life and a religious life. It's all one. If we don't understand this, our prayers will end up, it's almost guaranteed, our prayers will end up being about our comfort and our security. But we'll have a hard time believing that God cares as much about our comfort and security as we do. And so we won't pray very often, and when we do, it will be without expectation. Our prayers will be little more than worrying before God. That's all that some of us ever do. We call it prayer, but we just worry in front of God. And by the way, worrying in front of God is better than worrying anywhere else. So I'm not telling you don't do that, but I'm saying there's more than that. In this passage, Paul gives greater emphasis to prayer than any of the armor of God that he mentions in verses 14 through 17. He refers to prayer four times in verse 18 and also uses the word all four times in that verse. He wants to drive home the truth that prayer is imperative. Look at verse 18. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always, in Greek that's the word all again, always keep on praying For all the saints. All kinds of prayer, all the time, for all the saints. In Greek, in the Greek text, verse 18 does not start a new sentence. 
and in many of our translations it does, but this is one of those uh, Pauline famous run-on sentences. And, and just so you know, run-on sentences in English are bad, run-on sentences in Greek are an art form. So it's not like Paul's making, you know, he shouldn't do that, that's not the way it is. The first word here in this verse is the word through. And it points back to what Paul has been saying ever since verse 14. The way to prepare yourself, the way to stand your ground in the conflict is through prayer. It's through prayer that we take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Have you ever wondered, because I have, how you actually put on the armor that's mentioned here, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation? How do you take up the shield of faith? Do we just say, I take up the shield of faith? I've often wondered about that. I think we put on the armor of verses 14 through 17 through the prayer of verse 18. See, it's not like we put on the breastplate of righteousness, take the helmet of salvation, grab the sword of the Spirit, and as a final step, pray. Prayer is not the last thing we do. Prayer is the means by which we do all these other things. Our praying must take place in the Spirit. Now, some scholars, when they read that, they think that means something like, in a trance, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, or something like speaking in tongues. And I suppose that's possible, but the same word translated in the Spirit appears 35 other times in the New Testament and rarely has anything to do with speaking in tongues or being in a trance. I think the opposite, this might help us understand what Paul's talking about, the opposite of being in the Spirit is being in the flesh. That is, living as if God isn't there. Praying in the Spirit is praying with an awareness of God, a submission to his plans, an eagerness even for them, and a dependence on his provision. A person cannot pray in the Spirit who does not live in the Spirit. You can't just turn this on. You can't go all week. I knew some lady who was sleeping around, Christian lady. She was sleeping around, and then she'd go on Sunday to her church and get slain in the Spirit. That's not the way it works. Praying in the Spirit is not a technique. It's a life, a life in which God's concerns are our priority. Prayer is effective when it's in the Spirit. When we pray in the Spirit, we see answers. Paul tells us to pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Now, we mustn't forget the context in which this comes. This is happening in battle, right? You know, people pray more when they're in battle than any other time, right? That's when they pray. And if we don't realize we're in a battle, we probably won't pray. And we won't understand the occasions Paul's talking about. Those occasions are threats to the kingdom of God or opportunities to advance the kingdom of God. The occasions are our chances to sacrifice or to serve. Sacrificing and serving. Now, that may mean, as soon as we hear that, we think that's very religious sounding. But that may mean helping someone in need. Stopping and helping someone on the side of the road or resourcing the church financially 
or writing a public pulse on social injustice or inviting a lonely person over for dinner. When we're living in the spirit with an awareness of God, a submission to his plans, a dependence on his provision, we will see occasions to serve him. And when we see them, we'll pray. It'll just be what happens. Now, Paul uses the words prayers and requests, both words in verse 18. Prayers is the more general of the two. It includes thanksgiving, sharing concerns, listening for a response, everything that makes up prayer. Request is the more specific word. We request the supplies that we need to serve God's purpose. We request the guidance we need to know how to go about it. We can put in a request for ourselves or on behalf of someone else. That's what we call intercession, where we're putting in requests for someone else. In classical Greek, the word that's translated as request here meant need. We request what we need, what we need to succeed as God's people, as his operatives, as his agents in this battle. God wants us to put in requests. I have known people, Christians, who refuse to ask God for things. I think especially of the guy whose wife was dying of cancer. She'd been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I was visiting them, and, and one day I said something to him about praying, and he says, I don't pray for her. If God wants her to be healed, she'll be healed. I was dumbfounded. He thought that asking was unspiritual. It would show a lack of faith. That is so wrong-headed. God tells us to ask. He wants us to ask. Prayerlessness is disobedience. God's plan for the world includes our asking and his answering as a way of bringing him glory. Paul tells us to stay alert. And, and the word, if you tear it down etymologically, it means something like not falling asleep. How many of you had trouble with that when you pray, right? Don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. That's what Paul's saying. You know, when we're driving, it's really easy to be distracted. You're putting music on. Or you, you get a text, and you're not going to use your phone, but you just want to check it to see who the text is from. Or you're searching through the console for your sunglasses. That's the opposite of staying alert. The same kind of thing happens in our lives when we should be praying. We get caught up in the inner office turf war and forget why we're stationed at the office in the first place, to serve Christ and his kingdom. Or we go to a store and because somebody there treats us badly, we forget all about the spiritual battle and we get engaged in this emotional wrestling match with flesh and blood, verse 12. Or the coming election gets us so wound up that we forget all about the coming kingdom for which we're supposed to be preparing the way. When these things happen, we are not being alert. We're not living in the Spirit. We're not praying in the Spirit. Notice that we pray like this for all the saints. That includes the saints here and the saints in other places around our community and in our nation. 
when I come over here on Saturday nights to pray, I pray by name for all of the pastors in their churches that I can think of. That God will bless them, that he'll do for them what we're asking him to do for us. One of the most serious problems in the church today is the absence of a shared mission. We're like a basketball team where the star player's going for the most points scored in a season. And the center's going for the most rebounds in a career. And the point guard's going for the most assists in a game. And the other guys are just trying to impress the girls. Everybody's got their own agenda. The church was never meant to be an every-man-for-himself institution. Jesus didn't establish the church of the Lone Ranger. If you're a Lockwood regular but rarely pray for Lockwood people, you're not experiencing the kind of shared life that God wants you to have. If you don't feel like we're in this together, you're not yet where God wants you to be. Now, how can we do this? How can we pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests? How can we be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints? Well, we begin by reminding ourselves daily that we are part of a mission. Ours is not Operation Shock and Awe. Ours is Operation Salt and Light. We are getting the world ready for the kingdom of God. And we're doing it as we go about our daily lives. We don't have to go to the mission field to do this. Don't let yourself get so wrapped up in the office wars or the political battles that you forget the real reason you're here. Remind yourself that you're on mission for God's kingdom. Then learn how to seek God's guidance. You might want to grab a CD from last week or listen online. Experiencing God's guidance can revolutionize a a person's prayer life. Change the way they pray. Seek God's guidance. If you don't know how, learn how. Because it's so easy to forget to pray for the mission and for the people sharing it, start a prayer list. You can do what I do. You can put the names of people you want to pray for regularly on your online calendar and and set it to send you reminders to pray for them. On Tuesday, you pray for this guy. On Wednesday, you pray for that girl. On Saturday, you pray for that person. Maybe you pray for some project on Fridays. And if your calendar has room, put me on it too and pray for me. Expand your praying. If you, if, be honest with yourself, if you only pray for sicknesses and crises, you have room for improvement. One thing that helps me is to write out my prayers for a week or two. I don't do this all the time, but every once in a while, usually when I realize that I'm in a rut, I will start writing out my prayers. I limit myself to one page, not more. I'm not trying to write a book. I'm trying to write a letter to God. And I begin always with praising God for who he is. That's the part that quickly suffers in my prayer life. I start, when I get in a rut, I'm usually, oh God, I need this, this person needs that, and that's all I'm thinking. But I begin by praising him for who he is, his power, his might, his wisdom, his goodness, his love. And then I thank him for what he's done in sending Christ and calling me to join him. 
in giving me good work to do and the resources I need to do it and blessing me with a million things to enjoy. And then I write out my requests, stating the reasons behind them. That part's like filling out a requisition form. It helps me to think through what I and others and the whole church needs. And after I'm done writing it, I pray it. Now, I don't just pray word for word. I don't just read the letter, but I use it as a guide to talk with God. One last thing. Start praying for people in a way that reflects God's concerns. And if you're not sure what that looks like, pick up the help sheet, 10 Ways to Pray for People, that Jeff mentioned. It's back there on the cafe tables inside these center doors. So in this room, on the cafe tables by the doors. They will prompt you, for example, to ask God to help the person you're praying for to discern truth from lies. That's from 1 Timothy and from 2 Corinthians. Or to pray for the, the person to have a strong sense of God's purpose. That's from Romans and from uh, the Gospel of John. Or to pray that God will give a person hope. That's also from Romans and from Ephesians. Or to pray for that person to hear God speaking to them. That's from Isaiah. And there's lots more. Ten ways to pray for people. Expand your praying, not just about the latest crises. And one last thing. Some people excuse themselves from praying. And some of you might be doing this right now. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know all that, I know that, but I'm just not good at it. I'm not spiritual enough. Excusing yourself from praying is like excusing yourself from breathing because you don't have good lung capacity. Christians pray. And happy, effective Christians pray a lot. So pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with that in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Lockwood, a church that prays. That's what we want. God Help us to that end by your spirit. Fire us up about being with you. Lord, make us aware of our context this week as we leave here and go out into our regular daily routine. And Lord, answer our prayers. Not because we're anything, but because the mission is is everything, and because we belong to your Son, Jesus our Lord. Amen.